Well, we are continuing to walk through Psalm 23, and uh, we find ourselves in the third verse of Psalm 23 this morning, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And here we're reminded that although we are prone to wander, although we run away, although we wander away, our God comes and finds us, He restores us. He leads us, and he does so for his name's sake. So let's read and listen with hearts full of gratitude and grace, with reverence and joy and awe, because this is the word of our God. And and let's let's be careful not to uh, start to let our minds and hearts wander as we read this psalm. Uh, for uh, the fourth or fifth time at this point. Let's continue to listen closely. Let's continue to intentionally incline our hearts to the Word of God and to listen and uh, to not grow numb and cold. The psalmist writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you anoint the hearing and reading and preaching of your word with the presence and power of your spirit so that your people might be restored and led on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Again and again, writes Philip Keller, I would spend hours searching for a single sheep that was missing. Then more often, Then not, I would see it at a distance, down on its back, lying helpless. At once, I would start to run toward it, hurrying as fast as I could. Every minute was critical. Within me, there was a mingled sense of fear and joy. Fear that it might be too late. Joy that it was found at all. As soon as I reached the cast U, my very first impulse was to pick it up. Tenderly, I would roll the sheep over on its side, then straddling the sheep with my legs, I would hold her erect, rubbing her limbs to restore circulation to her legs. This often took quite a little time. When the sheep started to walk again, she would often just stumble, stagger, and collapse in a heap once more. All the time I worked on the cast sheep, I would talk to it gently, always couched in language that combined tenderness and rebuke, compassion and correction. 
Little by little, the sheep would regain its equilibrium. It would start to walk steadily and surely. By and by, it would dash away to rejoin the others, set free from its fears and frustration, given another chance to live a little longer. Well, Christian, I'm sure that I don't need to tell you how vividly that describes our experiences as God's covenant sheep. And of course, I I don't just mean our kind of initial experience as Christians of being lost and then found and, and being dead in sin and then made alive by grace, but I mean that this describes that which we continue to experience as members of God's flock. Being joined to his flock by grace, we still often, in our sin, we, we wander away. And sometimes it, it may just be for a short time, and sometimes for greater lengths. Sometimes our wanderings are, are more outwardly apparent, and sometimes they're merely invisible wanderings in our souls, unseen by the outside world. Sometimes we we wander on account of more kind of culturally respectable sins, and sometimes not. But no matter what it may be, as God's covenant lambs, we still wander away as lost sheep. Rightly, do we regularly, as we just sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Part of the good news of our passage this morning is also combined with another lyric of that song that we just sang when he says that Jesus came and sought me like a stranger. What does he say? He says, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. That's part of the good news of our passage this morning is that while we are prone to wander, God is determined to come and find us. While we're prone to leave him, he never leaves us or forsakes us. He will seal us. He will bring us home. In verse 3 here, we see that the Lord restores and leads his people in righteousness for the renown of his name. And you can, you can plainly kind of see three parts to this verse, and we're going to take them one by one. First, we see the, the gift of restoration. The second, we see the paths of righteousness. And then third, we see the Lord's name renowned. And first, we see the gift of restoration here. The psalmist, David, he writes, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. The Lord His shepherd restores his soul. And again, like the the rest of this kind of uh, poetic prayer, there's there's a metaphor at work here. Uh, The word translated as soul in some context might simply mean uh, the life of a thing. Um, And as it pertains to a shepherd and a sheep, it gives us a picture of this this sheep kind of wandering off and putting its own life in danger. Uh, But the shepherd comes and, and rescues it from death. He restores the sheep's life. He restores it to the flock. Uh, But then the the word translated as soul here 
It doesn't only mean the life of a thing. It can also mean uh, the sort of uh, inner person, the invisible part of a person, uh, the part of a person that is immaterial and spiritual. And here, when David says that the Lord restores his soul, like a shepherd restores the life of his sheep, he's saying that the Lord restores his spirit within him and gives his spirit life. Now, this, this word translated as restore here is also an interesting one. It's a word that literally means to return, uh, to turn around, to return, to do a, a 180, uh, to, to turn around and head in the opposite direction that you were literally uh, originally headed in. In a word, it means to repent, to repent. Uh, and of course, to repent in the biblical sense of the term means to turn away from sin and to turn away to Christ in faith to receive his promise of eternal life. It means to to run away from a life of sin and to run to Christ instead. Uh, And as it relates to the metaphor of a dying sheep's life being revitalized, in the Bible, repentance is seen as as a turning away from death and a turning to life. In fact, the, the prophet Ezekiel uses the exact same word in Ezekiel 18, 27 to 28. Uh, to describe this. He says that when a wicked person, and and here's the word, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he has considered, and, and here is the word again, because he has considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. You see, to be restored here means to turn away from sin and death and to turn to God, receiving the eternal life which He alone gives. And of course, as as we know, this is kind of predominant invitation and command of the Lord Jesus during His earthly ministry. In fact, Mark 1, the the evangelist Mark, summarizes the message of the Lord Jesus in, in verse 15 when he says that Jesus went around preaching the gospel, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And what's more, this This message wasn't constrained to Jesus' earthly ministry, but he continues to resound it across the globe as he sends his people into every nation, letting all peoples know that, as Acts 17.30 says, he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so if you're not a Christian and you're tuning in this morning, I hope you hear this invitation to turn away from the sin that so wearies you and entangles you and weighs you down with guilt and fear and shame. The, the, the Lord Jesus, in his invitation to repent, is inviting you to life and to life abundant. He's inviting you to enjoy the, the soul-satisfying reality of knowing him and being known by him. He is who you were created for. And if you'll only turn away from a life of sin, you will know of what David speaks here. when He says that the Lord restores his soul. But of course, the invitation and command to repent is is not just for non-Christians. We do well to recognize that this is not only something that people out there in the world need to do. It's something that we, as Christians, must do throughout our lives. As John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.8, he says that we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's something that you must keep up with. It's It's something that you must keep doing. We must keep with repentance repentance. As long as we keep wandering or keep being tempted to wander, we must keep repenting. 
It's something we must keep doing in an ongoing manner. It's a, a way of life, not an event, merely an event that begins and happens when we first become Christians. Martin Luther was, was right when he wrote in his 95 Theses, the first being that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Every day my soul is prone to wander, and so every day I must turn to the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ and set the eyes of my heart upon him. But now here's part of the wonderful news found in Psalm 23.3 here, is that repentance is not only a command, it's a gift. It's a gift. Notice who it is that does this work of repenting David's soul. He says, David writes, he restores, he repents my soul. And of course, repentance is, is a command, but in all reality, we are as able to repent as a sheep is to find its way home once it's wandered off. That is to say, that in and of ourselves, we are not able to repent. You know, I remember I had a dog growing up. Her name was Sugar, and she was a golden retriever. She was a hairy mess of a dog. I loved this, this beast. And she used to kind of wander off quite a bit. She used to, we, we had a large piece of property. We were on about three acres, and we didn't have any fences, and she would just kind of wander off, and we would let her, and, and then eventually wander off the property sometimes. And and uh, she wandered off, much like a sheep might do. Uh, but she would always kind of find her way back. You know, dogs are, are usually kind of like that. They wander off, but they, they tend to find their way back more often than not. And sheep are not like that. If they wander off, they don't have any sense of direction. They're not coming back. You have to go and find it. In the same way, we're unable to return to the Lord in our wanderings. We're helpless apart from His grace. We can do nothing apart from Him. And so repentance is not only a command, it's a gift. This is why Acts, uh, Acts 11.18 and 1 Timothy 2.25 speak of repentance as something that God grants as a gift and not something as people do in their own strength. We can only repent if God grants us true repentance. And so when it comes to this reality, we ought to pray like St. Augustine once did, command what you will, O Lord, but grant what you command. And he does. It's It's amazing. The Lord requires our repentance to give us eternal life, and we can't muster it up, so he says by his grace, here's some repentance. It's a gift. And now a couple pieces of application in light of this reality. While repentance is God's work of grace within us, on the other hand, we need to be careful not to approach repentance in, in kind of fatalistic terms. In other words, don't, don't approach repentance passively. Repentance is indeed a gift from God to his elect. But we should never view repentance as ourselves being kind of robotically and, and mechanically moved by some sort of external force. If we hear the call and feel the need to repent, we shouldn't just wait around passively expecting the Lord to robotically, mechanically make us repent. As, as one pastor put it, he said that repentance may not be ours originally, but it is ours inherently. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2, 12-13. He says that you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, we, we must continue to attend to God's word and to pay attention to our souls and to follow the Spirit's leadings. 
And as we continue to pursue this life of repentance, we do so actively all the while knowing that it is the Lord who is working in us to both actively will and work for his good pleasure. So don't be passive in living a life of repentance. Don't be fatalistic. However, on the other hand, we have to be astonished and humbled and grateful for repentance. If you're a follower of Jesus continuing in a lifestyle of repentance, you ought to be humbled by God's good gift to you. As unworthy as you are, as undeserving as you are, as much as you are prone to wonder, the Lord continues to bring you to himself and to keep you. And because repentance is a gift, living a lifestyle of repentance is not a reason to be proud and self-righteous. There's not some righteousness or goodness or strength within yourself that you mustered up to do it. It was the shepherd who came running after you and who gently turned you around and who brought you into his green pastures and into his flock. It's a reason to be in awe and wonder and humility before the God who grants you repentance. It's a gift. It's the gift of restoration. But now repentance must always produce a change of life as well. You know, too often we think of repentance as merely the conviction and confession of sin. We reduce it to the the sort of initial turning. But as J.I. Packer defines it, repentance is a change of mind that issues in a change of life. See, repentance must include not only an initial turning, but as we see next, also a walking on paths of righteousness. And so next, the psalmist writes, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Now again, returning to the metaphor, the the paths on which sheep can walk are are myriad. Uh, Halver Roning describes the, the part of the world in which our psalm was written like this. He says, on the steep slopes of the Judean hillsides are myriads of parallel paths permanently etched by centuries of foot traffic by sheep and goats searching for one blade of grass to munch on. Of course, in such places, sheep being as dense and directionless as they are, it would be far too easy for them to simply follow along a path which leads them away as they're, uh, from their shepherd and his intended destination and the rest of the flock. But a good shepherd, he, he keeps his sheep on the right paths and keeps them headed in the right direction in order to lead them to the places of rest and refreshment. And of course, this, this metaphor speaks to the reality that, that the Lord leads his people in paths of righteousness. He, he leads his people to live righteous lives, to progressively grow in living lives of righteousness and goodness. And the New Testament word we use to describe this is the word sanctification. Sanctification is, is that process wherein, uh, by God's grace, we grow in reflecting his righteousness and goodness to him and, and to one another. And we would do well to distinguish between sanctification and justification here. You know, our justification is this once and for all event wherein God declares us to be forgiven of our sins and now declared righteous because of Christ. It, it happens in the moment you first believe. If you trust in Christ, you are forgiven and you are declared righteous and nothing can ever change that because it's not based on you and your goodness or your progress and sanctification, but on the righteousness of Christ who never changes. But then God would not be a good friend and shepherd to us 
If he only relieved us of the guilt and eternal consequences of our sin without also relieving us of the destructiveness of the power of sin itself. And so he not only intends to relieve us of sin's guilt and eternal consequences in our lives, but of sin's power as well. He leads us into paths of righteousness and the lifestyles of righteousness and goodness. And this is, this is, this is good news because if you're anything like me, there are t- you just grow tired of yourself sometimes. You go so tired of how rude you are and impatient you are and self-centered you are and helpless you are to change. But, but the good news is that God never gets tired of you and he's progressively setting you free from your self-centered sinfulness and pride and idolatry within you. He's leading you on paths of righteousness. But now we, we need to avoid a couple of errors when it comes to sanctification. And first, we need to avoid the error of thinking of sanctification as superficial behavior modification. Sanctification is not superficial moral improvement. It is the total renovation of the entire human being through knowing and being known by Christ. I'm afraid that that many of us have fallen into the error of believing that sanctification leads to the kind of lives that we witness and and leave it to Beaver or the Andy Griffith show. You know, you've probably seen those shows before. If you watch those shows, you see a portrayal of, of people who are perfectly nice and pleasant and moral but I'll tell you that, that Satan would be perfectly pleased for you to live like Theodore Beaver or Andy Griffith so long as your heart is cold toward Christ and distant from his transforming power. You see, sin isn't just a, a, a few bad things you've done. Sin is the nature and condition of your humanity, of your heart, And so your sanctification can't be superficial. It must be deeply applied in your heart, in your soul, by your shepherd. Secondly, we need to avoid the the error of thinking that sanctification is is linear. Um, Of course, sanctification is, is what we call progressive. It's progressive in that it is continually heading in the direction of Christ-likeness. That is the Christian's destination, and they will continue to increasingly grow in Christ-likeness until they die or he returns. Yet while it's progressive, sanctification doesn't always happen in a straight line in our lives. It's not linear. If you were to illustrate it on a piece of paper, it wouldn't be a straight line. There'd be scribbles and circles, and there'd be uh, maybe some pauses and the like. The journey is, is filled with plot turns and regresses. Again, sheep are prone to wander. We wander off and the shepherd leaves the 99 to come get us. And our wanderings may be big and long or they may be short-lived and relatively unnoticeable to others, but wanderings they are. And the shepherd is always faithful to come get his elect sheep, but we still wander. Our sanctification is not always linear. And third, we, we need to avoid the error of thinking that sanctification is is our handiwork, that it's owed to us. There's indeed a a kind of grit or grind involved in sanctification on our end. We're, We're called to wage war against our own sin. We're called to fight to live righteously according to God's word. And this is a war and a fight that involves the shedding of blood, sweat, and tears on our part. 
There's an element of human work put in. And yet, like repentance, the the grit of sanctification is wrought by grace. He leads me. He leads me in paths of righteousness. It's not my own doing. It's, It's planned by God. It's purchased by Christ. It's performed by the Holy Spirit within we, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's the one who leads us in these paths of righteousness. Sanctification is ultimately his work. Therefore, we have to be filled with gratitude and awe and wonder at God's gift, that he would give to unworthy and sinful humanity the grace of rescuing us from the guilt and power of our sin. Of course, that leaves us with a question. Why would he do that? We're so unworthy, so undeserving of God's favor and kindness. We're the ones who wander away. He's under no obligation to come and find us and rescue us. Sin abounds, and yet grace abounds all the more. Why? David tells us that it's all so that the Lord's name would be renowned. The Lord restores the souls of his sheep and he leads them in paths of righteousness, he he writes, for his name's sake. He does so to magnify the worthiness of his own name. The reason he runs after us and rescues his wayward lambs is so that he would be relished and renowned as the good shepherd and the great I am. And not because of who we are as unworthy sheep. Sir Richard Baker, he summarizes this verse very well. He said, seeing that he has taken upon himself the name of a good shepherd, he will discharge his part, whatever his sheep may be. It is not their being bad sheep that can make him leave being a good shepherd, but he will be good and maintain the credit of his name in spite of all their badness. And there shall glory accrue to him by it, and his name shall nevertheless be magnified and extolled. Don't you see, Christian, that that God has sworn and bound the very reputation of his name to his kindness and grace to you. He has sworn to you in his son that he will never leave you or forsake you that he will forgive your sins, that he will declare you righteous, that he will rescue you from the guilt and the power of sin, that he will lead you safely home to himself, that he will give you everlasting life and the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth forevermore, that he will be your God and that you will be his child, that he will be your shepherd and that you will be his lamb. And if you trust in his son... There's nothing good you can do to make those promises more sure. And there's nothing bad you can do to weaken them. They are bound to God and his good name. And he will never do anything to taint the renown and the reputation and relishing of his great name. And still some of us might wonder how on earth it could possibly magnify God to restore sinners to himself, as vile and as bad as us. We might feel that due to our our sins and our reputations that we're actually a stain on God's good name. That we stain his reputation and hurt his renown. There's a man by the name of John Newton who used to sometimes feel that way. 
You've probably heard his name because he was, uh, he was the writer of that uh, great hymn, probably the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And indeed, Newton was a wretch. In fact, what he did and what he was would be seen by most of us today as, as one of the most vile and disgusting things a person can be. He was someone who kidnapped and bought and sold slaves as, as a, a captain and an owner of a ship. He, in his greedy and, and murderous heart, he saw the transatlantic slave trade as an opportunity to serve and benefit himself. And so he used his ship to move kidnapped slaves from the continent of Africa to the UK to the UK and to sell them there. It's horrendous. But then one day the, the chains of the guilt and power of his sin fell off. And his his eyes were opened to behold the, the beauty and the excellency and the goodness and the grace of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he was, he was rescued, he was redeemed, he was stored, and he was repented. And if we were to ask John Newton how God's name could possibly be relished and renowned by saving a wretch like him, this is what he would say. He once wrote this. He said, in one sense, we are all well suited to answer his purpose. For if we were not vile and worthless beyond expression, the exceeding riches of his grace would not have been so gloriously displayed. His glory shines more in redeeming one sinner and in preserving a thousand angels. Amen and amen, John. You see, the Lord restores and leads his people on paths that are pleasing to him. And we're not deserving of such kindness and grace. We don't deserve the gift of repentance. We don't deserve his sanctifying grace, but he lavishes upon us grace upon grace upon grace. And why does he do that? For the sake of his name. And so while we are prone to wander, we feel it. Though we're prone to leave the God we love, he takes our hearts and he perfectly seals them to enjoy his courts above. All that his name as the good shepherd and great I am would be relished and renowned in the earth and on into eternity. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts and help us to be assured of your constant and never-ceasing love for us. May we look to Christ, to his life, to his death, to his resurrection as proof of it. And may we experience it in our heart of hearts, knowing that while we wander, you always come find us and you'll never leave us or forsake us. So help us to trust you and to follow you more closely because of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.